0: Already last week in Psalm 37, we considered what it means to be faithful when the wicked flourish. Now, as we come to Psalm 38, we are not primarily looking at sin around us, but sin within us. Psalm 38 is a psalm for the person heavy-hearted over sin and the effects of sin. With that, let's read Psalm 38 together. And since these words are breathed out by God, and they come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, would you please, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says, a Psalm of David, for the memorial offering. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you bow with me one more time? Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Bring to our remembrance the things Christ spoke. Guide us in your truth. Fill us with your spirit. Save us from our sin. Strengthen us in your grace. Make us like Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David wrote this psalm based on his own experience of being weighed down, burdened by his own sinfulness and the effects of his sin in his own heart and his relationships and his life circumstances this is this is a heavy psalm david wrote this and he gave it to the people of god to sing to have in our songbook so that we would take this prayer and Sing it to God. Pray it to God. He gave this song to the people of God so that we would have words to offer to God when we are weighed down by our sin. When we are burdened by the effects of our sin in our lives. When we are weighed down by anguish over what we've done And He gave us this to lead us from that point of burden and anguish to find hope and salvation in God. So as we walk through Psalm 38 now, what Psalm 38 is inviting us to is is this. In the wake of your sin, bring your burden to God. And trust Him with it. In the wake of your sin, bring your burden to God and trust Him with it. We're going to look at this psalm in, in two sections. And in verses 1 through 12, I want us to hear Psalm 38 say to us, bring your burden to God. Bring your burden to God. Um, going to dive into verse 1, but before we go to verse 1, I just want to just quickly note that the psalm begins with a, a superscript, those words before the, the first verse starts, a psalm of David, which tells us David, the author, but then also these words for the memorial offering. So that's the way that the, the ESV chooses to translate. Uh, there's really just one word that has the sense of, of memory or memorial. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible translates this, a psalm of David, to bring remembrance, the New Living Translation says a psalm of David asking God to remember him. And so there's this idea of remembering, uh, but we don't quite know exactly uh, what the sense is. Uh, but I just wanted to, uh, to, to note that before we get into the, the main text uh, that David wrote. So as we come to verse 1, David is under the discipline of God. He's under the discipline of God. And so this is what he prays in verses 1 and 2. Read those again with me. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. So notice, he, he's not asking not to be disciplined at all. He, he's asking Yahweh, do not discipline me in your wrath. Discipline and wrath are are two ideas that we've seen already in the Psalms, but just to refresh your memory, it's important that we understand these two concepts of God's discipline on the one hand and God's wrath on the other hand. Both God's discipline and God's wrath have some things in common. Both are God's judgment on sin. And neither discipline nor wrath are pleasant. But discipline, God's discipline and God's wrath are different in some very important ways. God's wrath is for his enemies to condemn them, to pay them back for their sin against him. God's discipline is not for his enemies, but for his children. God's discipline is not to condemn, but to correct. God's discipline is not to pay his children back for their sin. God's discipline is to draw his children back to him. So David feels God's hand of judgment on him like a heavy weight, a burden on his shoulders, like like arrows that have impaled his heart. And so David prays God, let this rebuke be correction and not condemnation. Save me from your wrath. David goes on then to describe the agony of God's discipline in verses 3 and 4. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So notice David is weighed down for two reasons. First, because of God's anger at sin, his indignation, his hand of judgment, and because of the burden of sin itself, this pile of sins that have heaped higher than he can even hold. He's weighed down by God's anger at sin, but also just because of his sin itself. He goes on in verses 5 through 8. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day long, or all, excuse me, all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Now, he, he, he describes here these wounds, and, and we don't know if David had literal wounds. Uh, God didn't literally shoot arrows, uh, and so the, the wounds might also be a metaphor, like the arrows were metaphors. But in any case, um, again, this is a song that David gave to the people of God. Uh, and so they were, uh, we are to sing this uh, as words to God because of our burden of sin, whether there's a physical problem or not. The people of God are given this song so that we can sing this when we share the king's pain over sin. When we share David's anguish over sin. His burden. The aching of his heart. We sing this as the people of God sharing the king's grief and spiritual agony. David goes on and Verses 9 and 10, he says, O oh Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes it also has gone from me. So the Lord knows and he sees David in his anguish. And David acknowledges that, that God sees this weight that he's carrying, this agony in his heart. He sees how, how David is weakened by his own sin and the anguish that he is feeling over what he has done and the effects of it. God sees how David has lost his joy. This is the burden of sin. This is what we experience when we're weighed down, we're heavy, uh, there's a dark cloud, we lose our joy, we lose the brightness in our face. This is the inner anguish that David is feeling over his burden of of sin and his inner anguish is only compounded by other consequences that he experiences, not just in his own heart, but also in his relationships. Look at verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. The king's closest friends are far away, they can't bear to be around David in his agony. So not only is he in in agony, he's alone. And that's his friends. Verse 12 tells us about the king's enemies. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Uh, The king's enemies are plotting to kill him. They're speaking about how to ruin him. They spend all day talking about how they can take advantage of David's weakness to his detriment. Here David is, weak in agony, weighed down, strength failing from his sins, and his enemies see the perfect time to pounce and take advantage. Agony upon agony Burden upon burden, David is weighed down, heavy hearted. He's weighed down because of God's anger at sin. He's weighed down because of the burden of sin itself. He's experiencing the consequence of personal turmoil and anguish. He's experiencing the consequences of relational turmoil from friends and enemies alike. And all of this ultimately stems from David's Sin against a holy God. So again, David's prayer in all this is verse 1. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He is feeling the weight of the effects of his sin, and he pleads with God not to show him wrath when we understand just how holy God is, we will understand the magnitude of what it means that we have sinned against Him. And when we recognize God's holiness and how serious our sin against this God is, we will recognize how deserving of wrath we are. Just like David's first impulse is to say, God, don't show me wrath, we ought to recognize in light of our sin, first thought, I deserve the wrath of a holy God. When we come to terms with God's holiness, our sinfulness, we will be humbled, sobered. Too often, we as humans treat sin casually. We use euphemisms. Nobody's perfect, or I messed up, or I'm making some bad choices. We treat sin like it's a Lesser of two decent options instead of what it is rebellion against a loving creator. In fact, you might hear David's prayer in Psalm 38 God, don't discipline me in your wrath, and not even be able to relate to why someone would ever think to pray that to God. Why is he so worried about wrath? It's not even on my mind to think about wrath. But if we're that nonchalant about the wrath that we deserve, that may just reveal something wrong in our hearts. It may be that we don't have the kind of reverence that we ought to have toward a holy God. It may be that we think of ourselves as far more righteous than we really are. If we can't relate to this prayer, our attitude toward sin is, is far too casual. We've become too careless about just how holy this God is whom we have sinned against. Man, we hear David's prayer that God would not show him wrath and say yes and amen. Lord, I deserve your wrath. I know it in my bones. But I ask you not to be angry with me. Now, when we understand God's holiness and we understand the magnitude of our sin against Him, not only will we recognize just how deserving of wrath we are, but we will actually realize just how bold you have to be to pray a prayer like David is praying right here. This is shocking that a sinner would say to a holy God, please don't show me wrath. Who do you think you are? How bold do you have to be to say, I know you're a holy God and I have sinned against you and I deserve your wrath, but please do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Who would have the audacity to say such a thing? To a holy God. To ask a righteous God not to give him the wrath he justly deserves. This is a request for pure mercy. On what basis should a holy God ever consider answering a prayer like that? The only way. The only way we could ever pray a prayer like that. The only way David could pray a prayer like that, the only way any of us could pray a prayer, and certainly the only way God could ever answer a prayer so bold is because of the descendant of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus also suffered under the weight of sin, but not his own sin. Jesus, too, suffered the consequences and effects of sin, but not his own sin. Jesus suffered the burden of sin as a substitute to take our place, to take our burden on himself so he could take on himself the wrath that we justly deserve. Jesus suffered the personal turmoil and anguish of sin. Matthew records in Matthew 26, 37-39, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful, and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will luke adds in luke 22:44 being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground jesus the perfect son of god who knew no sin took the sin that we deserve and the wrath of God that we deserved. And as such, he experienced the agony of the burden of sin. He experienced the weight of the anger of God towards sin on himself. But not only did Jesus experience the personal turmoil and anguish of sin, he also experienced the relational anguish that came from experiencing the effects of sin. Jesus' closest friends and family distanced themselves from him. Matthew 26, 56 records how all the disciples left him and fled. Mark 15, 40 says, There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. They were looking from a distance. The disciples left, fled. And and not only did he experience the distance of his closest friends and family, like David's enemies tried to ensnare him, so Jesus experienced the pain of his enemies trying to ensnare him. Matthew 22, 15 says the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Jesus experienced all of the effects of sin, the burden of sin, the agony of sin, the consequences of sin, and the wrath of God on sin because God placed our sin, our uncleanness, our unrighteousness, our transgressions and iniquities, and He took them and He put them on His perfect, blameless Son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we, we who are full of iniquity, we who should have our sides burning and our hearts broken over sin, so that we might instead become the righteousness of God. By Christ's sacrifice, Jesus took the wrath that our sin deserves. The wrath that David prays to avoid. Jesus took it on himself. And it is only because of this sacrifice that anyone can possibly pray, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Because of what Jesus has done, we can pray this prayer. And God can answer it. So when you are weighed down and burdened by your sin, the effects of your sin, the consequences of your sin, the agony of your sin, the weight of what you have done, when you feel anguish in your heart and your burden feels too great to bear, bring your burden to Jesus. Bring your burden to the one who bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to God. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil of victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter? Yes, brighter than snow. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Bring your burden to God. And then trust God with it. Trust God with your burden. Let's turn our attention to the second half of the psalm now, starting in verse 13. There's a number of ways in which we see David's example of trusting God that we can follow. First, trust God with the outcome. When you are burdened by your sin... Bring that burden to God and trust God with the outcome. Trust God with the outcome. So David's enemies were speaking about David. But what did David do? Look at verses 13 and 14. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. David doesn't listen. David doesn't speak. He doesn't give a rebuttal. Why? Because he trusts God. Look at verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. David waits on the Lord. David does not answer. Yahweh is the one who will answer. Yahweh is the one who will bring justice, who will vindicate him. David counts on this. Look at verses 16 and 17. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. So again, the enemy is ready to celebrate as soon as he sees the king's foot slip. And David feels like he is about ready to fall. So, he asks God not to let the enemy rejoice over him. He asks God to defend him before his enemies. David's silence here foreshadows Jesus' silence before his enemies. Jesus was silent in his suffering as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Jesus suffered for our sins, he was silent. And he trusted God with the outcome. In the wake of your sin, trust God with the outcome. Now, as you experience sin and, and the natural consequences that come from sin, you need to realize you may not get the outcome that you want you may not get the outcome that you would prefer. In the wake of your sin, you may not get back the level of trust that you once had with your family. You may not get back the reputation that you once had. You may not get back the ministry you used to have. You may not get back the wealth you used to have. But you can trust that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God will be glorified. He wants to make you more like Christ. So trust the outcome that He calls good for your glory. Trust God with the outcome. Second, trust God with your sin. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. David confesses the sin that is the cause of this situation. He tells God he is sorry. He expresses his sorrow over his sin. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7 and verses 10 and 11. There are two kinds of sorrow we can have over sin, godly grief or worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Worldly grief Hates the consequences of sin, but it does not hate sin itself. Worldly grief has a lot of sorrow, but no repentance. Worldly grief is not eager to deal rightly with sin. Worldly grief is eager to get back to a comfortable life without consequences. Worldly grief does not turn away from sin, and so worldly grief ultimately ends in death. But godly grief hates sin because it is an offense against a holy God. Godly grief doesn't just hate the consequences. Godly grief hates sin itself. Godly grief isn't focused on getting back the life that I once had. Godly grief is focused on making what is wrong right. Godly grief is willing to accept the consequences of sin. And godly grief produces repentance. It turns away from sin. It turns to Jesus And so it leads to salvation without regret. So when you find yourself in the wake of your sin, what are you sorry about? I hope you're sorrowful, but what are you sorrowful about when you realize you have sinned? Are you sorry about the consequences? Well, that's natural, but it's not necessarily godly grief. Are you sorry that you hurt someone else? Well, that's good. But it's not necessarily godly grief. Or are you like David and sorry for your sin? He says, I am sorry for my sin. Do you hate what you've done? Do you hate that you have done evil in the sight of God? The only kind of sorrow that ends in salvation is godly grief, sorrow over sin. So if you find yourself even today in the wake of your sin, may you be sorrowful, but may that grief produce in you repentance that leads to salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his finished work on your behalf. Third, trust God with your enemies. David returns again to his foes in verses 19 and 20. But my foes are vigorous, they're mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. The enemies of the king are mighty and many. And notice... In this case, they do evil against him because he's good. So, as we consider this prayer of confession and, uh, uh, and this penitent heart of sin, it's not that these enemies are responding with evil to David's sin against them. No, David has been good to them. But David is experiencing this weakness and vulnerability that's a consequence of his sin against God, and his enemies want to harm him by seeking to capitalize on his weakness and vulnerability, despite the fact that he has been good to them. Uh, David's enemies are bringing false accusations like Jesus's enemies would. Mark 14, 55 and 56, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Of course, again, in Jesus' case, this sin against him had nothing to do with his own sin. Uh, For us, sometimes in the wake of our sin, uh, others sin against us, but in a way that's not directly related to our sins. Uh, So something might happen to you and you think, well, wait a minute. I can stomach the consequences of my own sin, but this doesn't have anything to do with my sin. Uh, This doesn't seem just. How do we respond? Well, Peter says this about Christ in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If Jesus can endure reviling and suffering, and he was totally without sin, we can endure being sinned against even when it's not justified. We can trust God and entrust ourselves to this God who judges justly. Finally, trust God for salvation. Look at David's final appeal to God in verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He asks Yahweh to save him from his sin and from the consequences he is experiencing. He asks Yahweh not to forsake him, to be near him. He asks for help from this God whom he calls my salvation. In the wake of your sin, no. if you're in Christ, you are not forsaken. The outcome may not be what you want. The pain of what you've done might be real. And there might still be remaining consequences. Things might not be all good. But you will never be forsaken by God, your salvation. He is near to you. The amazing thing about what Christ has done is he has reversed what ought to be natural in the case of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, the first thing they did was cover and hide. Yet God pursued them. A God who is too holy to look on sin, pursued them. That kind of a mercy is possible because of what Christ has done. And so we can pray, God, be not far from me, because we have a Savior who died so that he will actually come close to us in our sin in our weakness, in our burden, in our unworthiness, though we may want to run and hide, He is near to save us, to cleanse us, to change us into His image. Not only can we look back and know that in Christ The wrath of God has already been taken by Jesus. Not only in our sin today can we have a Savior who is near to help and love and change and cleanse, but also there will be a day when Jesus saves us from all of the effects of sin, all of the consequences of sin. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. And verse twenty three. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We can pray with David, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation, knowing that one day Jesus will return to save us from the very presence of sin and all of its effects. Today, the weight of sin and the burden of sin may cause groaning in our bodies, pain, suffering, anguish. But one day, our spirit and soul and body will be blameless, glorified, sanctified when Jesus comes. And so, like David says, Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We say, Come. Lord Jesus, in the wake of your sin, bring your burden to God and trust him with it. I'm going to pray and we'll sing in response um, to the truth that we have just heard. Um, want you to know if you are here today and you need you need prayer. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ, and I'm talking about the weight of sin, and you feel the burden of the fact that you've sinned against God, and you deserve God's wrath. Um, I want you to know, I'll, I'll be down here after we're done, and I would love to talk to you, pray for you, talk about how you can have that burden lifted by the blood of Jesus. Or maybe you have trusted in Christ and you are feeling the burden of your sin and the weight of what you've done and you're feeling this godly grief and it's producing repentance in you but you need some help in what that repentance might look like. I'd love to talk to you as well. Um, Don't let the burden of your sin continue to weigh you down. Bring it to Jesus. And have a brother or sister in Christ come alongside you as you do so. Let me pray. Father. Lord, I lift up to you those who are in this room. And I ask you to do what you want to do. Lord, for, for the person who has never trusted in Christ and knows the weight of sin and the burden of sin and is realizing that they have sinned against a holy God and they are, as, they are deserving of wrath. And right now, there is nothing standing between them and your wrath. Lord, I pray that today they would trust in Jesus to bear their sin for them. That they would trust in Jesus' death that took the wrath that they deserve so that they could be cleansed and sanctified and blameless before you and have new life, be forgiven, and know you. Lord, I pray for the the Christian who has sinned, who is heavy-hearted because they love you and they sin against you. Lord, I pray that you would show them that the cross is enough still, It wasn't just enough the day that they first trusted you. The cross is enough today. Lord, I pray that they would bring your burden to you. They would entrust you. Lord, I pray that we would rest in the goodness of what Christ has done. We love you and praise you.